Let me in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54 today. It's most verses I think I've ever preached at one time in my whole life. I know I can get through it because I got through it in the first service. Um, but as typically happens, I add things in the second. So we'll see what happens. Well, I got to get through it. So we'll, we'll just hang on, right? So now it's page 870 in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I would encourage you to make sure that you're following along today. It's such a long passage. We're going to read chunks, and I'm going to talk, and then we're going to read some more, and I'm going to talk some more. And so just to try to help bring the fullness of the passage out, I want us to, want us to see that. But if you are a person who likes drama, like you're the person jumping at, you know, just watching the conflict that happens on all these reality shows like Survivor and stuff like that, well, you are in for a treat today. There is high drama ahead, lots of conflict. Um, so if you're not someone who likes that and feels awkward, well, that's ahead of you too. So, so uh, it's just the reality of it. J- Jesus is going to get into it with uh, the Pharisees and the lawyers. I, I want you to see this. Jesus was a compassionate man. I mean, he was full of compassion and mercy, right? So he saw people in physical need and he met them in their physical need. But that didn't mean that he was, that he was turning a blind eye to sin or that he didn't have a concern for sin in the world. It wasn't that, that he was, hey, I just got to fix all these, the, these physical issues. I just got to make the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. I just got to relieve the oppression of the oppressed. It, it wasn't, Jesus wasn't doing that and then ignoring the issues of sin. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, big picture, that's what he came to deal with was the sin issue. And he didn't in any way withdraw or pull back from confrontation and confronting people in sin. It's just ironic to me Surprising to me that the people who he was most confrontational with were not those who were blatantly or easily viewed as being sinful. The woman at the well, for example, John chapter 4, you can read about it. Jesus clearly confronts her in her sin of adultery and sleeping around and and, and clearly deals with her sin, but he's compassionate in it and he's no more confrontational, no more direct than he needs to be. But then we see him begin to deal with these Pharisees, these religious folks, the people who everybody else, by the standards of the day, everybody else would have seen them as people who had it together. They had all the answers. In fact, they were the good church-going folks of the day. Like everybody viewed them as having it together. But they were the ones that Jesus brought the greatest amount of confrontation. In fact, today it's so direct, so bold, it's like a boxing match. It'd be like me going up against Muhammad Ali when he's in his prime right? I'm not going to stand a chance. He's going to break my nose, uh, I mean, black my eyes, and I'm going to walk away acting as if I won. That's essentially what you're going to see happen. It's really kind of shocking. But specifically, he's going to be dealing with them on their issues of hypocrisy and legalism. And I think you'll see how that plays out as we read through the passage. We'll begin in verse 37. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You see, he's taken, he uses an an analogy of the cup and dish and immediately turns it and applies it with personal 
uh, personal confrontation, personal affront. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who made the outside make the inside also, but give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus has just faced down accusations of using the devil's power. Like they didn't deny that Jesus was doing great miracles, they began to discredit him by saying his power was from Satan, right? So, so he just faces down that accusation. He's getting warmed up for this fight, really is what's about to happen. He faces down that accusation, then he turns around and he has to deal with people who say, hey, that was pretty cool, but I think we need more. You need to give us another sign. And Jesus tells them, you are an evil generation. And somehow that got him an invitation to lunch, hey, I want you to come to my house. Now, we don't know the motives of the guy that invited him to lunch. We don't know what purpose he sought to fulfill in asking Jesus to lunch. Probably, as you see the passage unfold, you'll see that it's probably not pure. But he asked Jesus to lunch, and Jesus actually goes. He, we have in our mind that like Jesus just hung out with a bunch of sinful folks, and he was always compassionate, super merciful to them. And he was. Oh, <laughs> Don't misunderstand that. But in the same way that he was approaching sinful people in their sinfulness, he was approaching self-righteous people in their self-righteousness. He wasn't, he wasn't for one people. And that's really hopeful for people who live in a city like Springfield, surrounded by churches who have lots of rules to live by. It's really a hopeful thing. So... <clears throat> Here it is, he's sitting at lunch, and this guy is astonished that Jesus didn't wash his hands. Now this isn't probably, if you're astonished that Jesus didn't wash before dinner, it's probably for a different reason than the Pharisee is astonished that Jesus didn't wash before dinner. Like, you know, your kids come to the table, and they got the black under the fingernails, and it's all nasty, and you're like, you are not about to put stuff in your mouth with those hands, go wash, right? That, that kind of makes us feel a little gross and cringe a little bit. That's not why they were worried. That's not why they were concerned. The Jews had come up with this extra biblical tradition, this extra biblical uh, uh, law, if you will, that said you must be pure when you sit down to eat because we are impure and our hands are impure. They're, they're prone to uncleanness. you got to wash them before you start putting food in your mouth. And so there was this practice. We'll, we'll, I'll refer you to it in just a, in just a little bit so you can see it or, or hear it. But there's, a, there's this practice that they expected him to follow. And when he didn't, they were astonished because in their mind, Jesus was sinning. Now, push it out just a little further. The logical extension is if Jesus reaches into the food and he is impure and he touches the food then he's just made the food impure. Not only did he ruin his lunch, he ruined theirs, right? So there's all kinds of problems here for these Pharisees and the people that are at this lunch, and they are astonished. Couldn't believe it. Who does he think he is? And we don't know what exactly happens. We don't really know that this Pharisee is even uh, saying anything. Certainly, you can imagine. I mean, you've been to potluck dinners. You, you can imagine the whispers behind his back and the looks of, 
<gasps> didn't wash his hands. You can imagine that kind of stuff happening, but the reality is we don't really know what caused Jesus to react. However, we do see his reaction. And it's, I mean, it's confrontational. He lets him have it. What you need to know is this. Jesus didn't actually break a rule. He didn't sin as this happened. So any accusation or any astonishment is because of some conviction or some commitment to an extra biblical rule that God himself never came up with. So what had happened is, is these Pharisees were living by a set of rules that had been being established over a period of time. So God met the Israelites, uh, well, he met them before Sinai, but he meets them at Sinai, and at Mount Sinai, and he says, I'm going to give you rules, and I want you to live by them and obey them, and I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. That's when he entered into covenant with Israel, just immediately after him leading them out of Egypt and, and relieving them of the oppression and slavery that they lived in in Egypt. So he leads them out by power and miracles, and they come to the foot of Sinai, and in power and, and in authority, he, he, he meets with them, and he says, I'll be your God, you be my people, and here's the law I'm going to give you to live by. And so what they did was they took his perfect law which they weren't going to be able to obey fully anyway. They took his perfect law and they began to interpret it and build extra laws and extra rules that kept them from ever getting close to breaking the original rule. So as an example, think of it like this. So when you go to the zoo, they keep lions in a cage for a reason, right? Lions are dangerous. So we want them in a cage, and as long as they're in the cage and we're away from the cage, it's great. But if we decide to go up to the lion and, and reach through the cage and pet the lion, we could still provide the lion's lunch with ourselves. Like, we could still be eaten. So zoos were like, oh, this isn't going to work. We can't just build a cage. We've got to build a barrier that keeps people from reaching the cage. Because people aren't smart enough, they're not capable on their own to know better than reaching into the cage with the lion. So that's what the Pharisees and the, and the experts in the law began to do. They're like, people are not going to be able to do this on their own. We've got to establish this whole list of rules that ever keep them from getting close to breaking the law. So they established a barrier that kept people from getting to the law. And, and, and they felt pretty good about it. In fact, they felt so good about it that they began to elevate their extra-biblical traditions, their extra-biblical rules to the same level as God's law, as if it was the words they had received at Sinai. And they began to live by those. And they began to count themselves pure because of those. They had determined that as long as they were obeying the rules of the Mishnah or the, or the oral tradition that the rabbis and the, and the experts in the law were handing down that they actually deserved God's blessing, that they actually deserved an audience with the creator of all the universe. And it wasn't because they weren't disobeying God's law, but because they weren't disobeying their own. Well, you can see Jesus doesn't agree. In fact, he's pretty upfront about it. <clears throat> he's pretty direct about it. You fools. 
Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the, that's not the, the way I want my conversation with Jesus to begin. You fools. You are so worried about the outside that you don't even think about what's true about the inside. You don't have any understanding. You are so committed to washing the outside, and, but, but you ignore the whole time the inward reality of, your, of, of the depths of your depravity. You are wicked. You are greedy, he says to him. His problem was not that this guy was trying to be a good person. His problem was that this guy thought he was being a good person because he was following a law in his own power. So we're not against obedience, right? We're not saying that holiness isn't important. What we're saying is that holiness as as, as an act of, of power in my own strength and by my own might is not really holiness. This is the danger of religion. It's the danger of a set of rules that call us to act a certain way, but, but, but do not do anything about converting or changing the inner person. Isn't the God who created the outside, isn't the God who is responsible for the flesh and the function of my body, isn't the God who established the functions of my brain and the ways that I think and the, and the, and, and the God who, told, uh, who designed me in such a way that, that I was going to grow a certain height and I was going to grow a scraggly, funky-looking beard. And so, so isn't that God, the same God who created the inner man, Isn't that God who says, if this is pure, but the inner man is impure, isn't he the same God that's able to say, you're impure? If God created both, then both are accountable to him. And Jesus is like, no, this religion is dangerous. In fact, I would summarize it this way. This is the point. This is, we're going to see this work out specifically in the coming verses. Religion promises purity but delivers death. You are a wicked and greedy people. Religion promises purity but delivers death. Let me just give you the hint of the hope that's to come. Only the gospel. Only the gospel can purify a sinner and make the dead heart alive. Religion promises that if you do all things right, that you will be loved by God, that you will be acceptable by God, that you will be pure before God. This washing of the hands is a perfect example. It could certainly remove the dirt from the surface. The rinsing of the water could certainly wash away the dirt from under the fingernails. But it could do nothing to the inside of these people. And Jesus didn't let them stay where they were. With the motive of compassion. It might be difficult to see, but with a great desire for their good. He showed them the truth so that they could see their lies. And he gets very specific. Let's keep reading verse 42 is where we'll pick up. 
But woe to you, Pharisees. For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These ought to ha- you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing it. So Jesus, in as he confronts them, as he begins to deal with the bigness of their problem, he doesn't leave them with some general statement. He gives them specific points, and he, he, he approaches them as woes. Woe to you, Pharisees. And he calls them out in three ways, three places. And he shows them religion can change our outward actions, but it will never change our motives. It will never change our desires and it will never change our nature. He shows them their motives, the issue with their motives, and he highlights it in the first woe. Woe to you because you tithe on your mint. What all does he call out? Your your mint and rue and every herb. You know, they're, they're so picky about what they're giving in their tithes. They're going out to their spice garden and they're saying, oh man, I, I, I've got this much spice. I, I'm going to throw this much on the, on the scales and this is, okay, a tenth of it's off and that's going to go to God. That's how serious they were about tithing. They're observing this external law because God needed mint for his tea. That's in, I don't know what they're thinking, but, but he's got to have his mint and he's got to have his root. They were nitpicking. They were being extremely specific in the way that they observed this external rule. And Jesus says, but all the while you're doing this external work, you're missing judgment and love of God. You're missing the inward motives, the inward ability. Yes, certainly you should be doing the things on the outside, but but you should also be exercising judgment. This isn't a social justice word. This is a word that speaks of... of, um, of right judgment, like determining what's right and wrong. He's showing them that they're incapable of determining what's best and good and worse. He, they, they can't even know, they can't exercise right judgment. And so as they're making plans for their life and as they're determining that they're going to obey for their life, they're incapable of making a plan for themselves because they can't exercise judgment. They can't exercise a love of God, the very motive, the very reason that we would call our church to holiness because we love God. Because we love him, we obey him, not so that we will be loved by him. He has loved us unconditionally and therefore we love him. And because we love him, we obey him. It's a totally different motive, but they were missing these motives. They were missing these inner drives to accomplish what would honor God. Because religion can't change your motives. Religion will only leave you with selfish motives. It will never change our desires or their desires. Jesus highlighted their desire by their approval for men, like their desire for approval for men. You love the seats of honor in the synagogue. You love to be in the place of prestige. You love people noticing you up in front. I don't, 
I know. I know my own struggle here. I know my own fight with this. It's it's scary to think how easy it is to begin to allow the accolades of people to begin to fill my heart. I'm thankful for a reminder like this. This will never serve you well. Not only were they looking for it in church, they're looking for it in the marketplace, out in public. Like they're walking around with their robes and their vestments. They're, they're walking around with all of this stuff on them to demonstrate to the world around them how holy they are. And people are looking at them and admiring them. And, and oh, I just wish I could be like them. They're so amazing. They're so special. If I just had the willpower to, to be obedient like them. The risk here is that when our desires are the, are, are the accolades of man, the only reward we'll ever get is the accolades of man. Religion and the practice of an empty, dead religion powered by my flesh will be that I will only ever receive the accolades of men, but I am grateful that God has shown me this struggle that I might seek to put it to death and find my acceptance fully and only in him. Religion will never do it, but the gospel will. And I am grateful for it. He, he deals with them in their motives, in their desires, and in their nature. He tells them that you are like unmarked graves that people walk over and they don't know it. So just imagine, they look like a plot of land on which you would build a house. They look like a plot of land that, that, that you would sit down and, and bring your family to enjoy a picnic on. But underneath the surface, they are filled with the stench of death. They are not what they appear to be. The image that is being portrayed is a lie. And inside, they are dead. And I appreciate one of the statements from uh, the, the Reformed Expository Commentary by Philip Ryken. He writes this, Whatever secret sin lurks inside, understand that outward obedience without inward godliness is the heart of hypocrisy. At their core, this was the issue. Their motives, their desires, their nature. They all demonstrated that these people were hypocrites, but they weren't willing to admit it. They were convinced, they were, they were perceiving and believing and trying to convince others that they were righteous. That they were pure before God. That they had done all that was necessary to be able to stand in the presence of a perfect and holy and powerful God. They were hypocrites. But they couldn't see it. They were blind to it. And they were blinded because of their religion. Religion can only change outward actions, but it will never change our motives. It will never change our desires or our nature. And Jesus, 
confronts them. And it'd be great if this was like, you know, okay, that's pretty tough. I don't know if I can deal with more. Let's just handle that, that right now. The thing is, it doesn't stop. In fact, Jesus isn't just going to confront the Pharisees. He's about to confront every person, every other person in the room. In verse 45, it says this. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Let's just deal with that real quickly. So, so here's this guy listening to Jesus speak, and he says, hey, you're not just insulting them. You're insulting us too. Now, again, we don't know his motive. Maybe he's like trying to guard Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you know, settle down. It's kind of offensive. That's difficult for people to hear. You know, you should probably change your tone just a little bit. Maybe not use such direct statements as if he had the right to command God to do anything. Or it could be that, hey, this is my friend. Who do you think you are? You're not just insulting him. You're insulting me too. And don't you know who I am? Whatever his motive is, he decides that he's hearing what Jesus says and he is not going to stand for it. And so he steps in. He's like, hey, we're going to put a stop to this. Now, let me let you know who he is. So the lawyers are the people, who, they're not lawyers like we consider lawyers today. They're not people who are, who are going to court and, and uh, filing suits or it's not business law or, or divorce law or um, uh, family law. It's, it's, it's not law in, those sen- in that sense. They are experts in the Mosaic law. And what their job was, what their role was to sit down and read the law and interpret it and help people, they were intended to help people understand it. That's the lawyers. The Pharisees, in contrast, the Pharisees would be like the practitioners. So the lawyers come out with the exposition or or they codify the law. They give us instruction from the law. And then the Pharisees were the practitioners. Like they're out there living it up. They're trying to obey it. They're trying to observe it. And they were hypocrites because of it. So here's this lawyer stepping in because now it's not just an insult to the Pharisees that they're hypocrites. Well, wait a minute. I'm the one that came up with that. If it's an insult to them, it's an insult to me. And I want you to see that the astonishment that was first exercised quickly turned to offense. Like they were astonished that Jesus didn't wash his hands. But now they're insulted because he confronted them with truth. And then this guy foolishly says, hey, you shouldn't insult us. And Jesus says, oh, I'm glad you spoke up. I got something for you too. And so he gives this guy three more, wo- wo- three more woes that basically are going to insult him a little further. So we'll pick up in verse 46. And he said, woe to you lawyers. So he's changed, he's changed the direction of his, of his comments. He was woeing to the Pharisees. Now woe to you lawyers, experts in the law, people who have expo- exposited or uh, taught the law. Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets 
and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against the generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Let me just give you a, just a textual note. A lot of, a lot of dif- different perspectives about where Jesus gets this statement, I'll send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill. And persecute. A lot of different discussions. Some people think he's quoting from an extra biblical text that we just, or, or a text that would have been scripture had we found it or something like that. There's a lot of different opinions about that. I fall, and as I studied, my, I, just, just so you know, as I studied, that Jesus is quoting between, quoting from a conversation or an understanding that he and his Father and the Holy Spirit have together as God. This is like a conversation. This is what God has determined and decreed, and he knows because he happens to be the second person of the Trinity. So when he speaks, he doesn't have to reference some obscure text. He can speak with authority. And so that's where I kind of fell out at. And I, I would encourage you, you go read it and, and, and you go do some study on it and make your determination. That's kind of where I landed. So he's speaking with authority, telling them you are responsible for the death of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering now, I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus just kind of got in their face too. He wasn't, he, he wasn't less direct. He wasn't less confrontational. But he was being as confrontational as necessary to help these people see their lives with his truth. And again, he's not, he's not being a jerk about this. I, the, the word, woe to you, this is a, a lament. He's sad about this. He's grieved over the fact that these people who had entered into covenant with God at Sinai, that these people who had the prophets, who had the patriarchs, who had the, the, the promises, who had the lineage, these people are missing it. And they're counting on their own strengths and own abilities and their own power. So he confronts them in the midst of it. And he shows them religion will never be good news to anyone. You you, you teachers of the law, religion will never be good news to anyone. It only burdens people. It silences truth and it removes access to God's grace. It burdens people. So they would, they would continue to build laws that didn't help people, that would burden people. So just imagine it. They had the law of God. And let's just, just, let's just say there was one law, just one law that everybody had to follow. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Let's just imagine that that was the, the extent of God's law. One law. What they did was they came in and said, hmm, people aren't going to be able to figure that out on their own. We don't want them to break it. So they gave them three or four more to begin to obey in addition to the one. So I don't know about you, but if this one law is the one I'm supposed to obey and you just told me I've got four more, that doesn't seem like help. That seems like four more laws that I could potentially break and suddenly I'm condemned, right? That sounds like more weight, not less. That sounds like more of an issue than less of an issue. They were not being helpful. They were loading burdens on people, crushing them under it. Let me just give you an example. So so I told you that, that they were astonished because Jesus didn't wash his hands. Well, there's extra biblical rules for people to follow. Let me just read what they were expected to do before they ate. 
The hands are susceptible to uncleanness, and they are rendered clean by, pour, by the pouring over them of water up to the wrist. Thus, if a man had poured the first water up to the wrist and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand becomes clean. But if he poured both the first water and the second water beyond the wrist, and the water flowed back to the hand, the hand remains unclean. If he poured the first water over the one hand alone and then bethought himself and poured the second water over the one hand, his one hand alone is clean. If he had poured the water over the one hand and rubbed it on the other, it becomes unclean. But if he rubbed it on his head or on the wall to dry it, it remains clean. You got it? So God calls them to be holy, calls them to be pure, demands that they live in obedience to his laws, and they begin to interpret what it looks like to be pure, and that's just one, one aspect that they begin to determine people must live by if they are going to be pure. Does that sound like help? That's a burden. Not only that, you're not lifting a finger to lift these burdens yourself. The reality is they're making rules they're not even living by themselves. Just add a weight to people that crushes them. That's not good news. It's not good news because they silence truth. God had sent prophets and he was going to send apostles to teach them and call them back to himself to call them to the, the grace that's in him and, and show them the truth of their own need of him. But rather than listen, they killed them. And this had, this had been happening. This had been happening over and over and over. And Jesus references that they are now responsible. Yes, they are now responsible for the death of every prophet from Abel to Zechariah. Now, Jesus doesn't do that. It's not like an A to Z kind of thing because he's not speaking English, right? It's not like he's worried about our alphabet and he's trying to do something creative with that. Jesus would have been reading the Hebrew scriptures. He would have, the men that he was speaking to would have been listening to and studying from the Hebrew scriptures. And so in the Hebrew scriptures, Abel was the first martyr, the first person to die because he was faithful. You remember the story. Abel's offering was acceptable to God. We know from Hebrews that it was because it was an offering offered in faith. And Cain got jealous because he was not acceptable to God. And Cain says, well, hey, if I'm not acceptable to God, I don't want you to enjoy the goodness of that, so I'll just kill you. So out of jealousy, he kills his brother. Zechariah is the last prophet mentioned. As you arrange the, the scripture, as you arrange the Old Testament scriptures, the way the Hebrews would have arranged it, Zechariah is the last prophet in that arrangement that is mentioned being killed. So from every, every prophet, from Abel to Zechariah, Jesus is saying that blood is on your hands. No, you didn't physically kill him. You didn't physically kill them, but the same spirit that seeks to silence them with death is the same spirit that rejects them as being truth today. 
You are silencing truth, and as you do, you become responsible for death. You might as well be the ones digging the tombs so that people can't hear from them, so that people can't respond to them. And just as you seek to understand just how this works out in the long run, think about this. Jesus speaking truth was sent by God. We, we read it last week, Hebrews 1.3, that, that he is how God spoke to us. And they're going to kill him. But the reality is, in the same way that these apostles are responsible for the death of all the prophets... Uh, the, 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 the lawyers and the Pharisees, I mean, as they are responsible for the law of all the prophets, even though they weren't physically there. Everyone who has ever lived is responsible for the death of Christ. We may not have been the ones swinging the hammer. We may not be the ones uh, uh, hanging him on the cross. We may not be the ones saying, okay, go ahead and crucify him. But he died because we are a people, we have all been a people who seek to justify ourselves by our own might and in our own religious practice. So he condemns these lawyers for silencing truth, and for loading people with burdens. And then he challenges them, this is not good news, what you're teaching people, what you're giving people to hear is not good news because it removes the access to grace. They had the key. They had the scriptures. They had the opportunity to know God and enjoy the good that comes from knowing God. And they took that key and they threw it away so that not only could they not enter into the knowledge of God to knowing God and enjoy his grace in it. They made it impossible for anyone else, anyone that would come after them, it would be impossible for them to fully understand the grace of God. Because as soon as a person begins to listen to them and believe what they're saying, they are loading themselves up with a burden. And they are saying, I can actually do what God says I can't do. Grace is unmerited goodness. Grace is undeserved goodness. It is unrequired. It is, it is not, uh, God is not obligated to give us this goodness. He is not required to let himself be known any longer. But he gave them the key that they might know the grace of knowing him. And they chucked it. And anybody that listens to them is being obstructed from stepping in and knowing God and knowing the grace of knowing God. See, the reality is that these men were lawyers and they were hypocrites too. So when they heard the words uttered to the Pharisees, yeah, they, they were offended. They were insulted just like the Pharisees were. But they themselves were living by a legalistic code and they were demanding everyone else to do the exact same thing. Legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God, says Timothy Keller. This is exactly what these people were doing. 
in their own heart and in their own life, they had established something other than a Messiah, something other than a sacrificial uh, uh, sacrifice, uh, 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 someone to stand in their place for their sins. They were depending on their own power, on their own might to prove themselves pure, to prove themselves righteous and worthy of standing in God's presence. And not only were they doing that, they had begun to demand everyone else do it also. They had begun to give a message of works righteousness. Maybe, maybe you know like people like this. People that have whole lists of rules that they live by that makes them feel good about who they are. Lists of rules that they expect everyone else to measure up to so that they can be acceptable. In their study, The Gospel-Centered Life, Bob Thune and Will Walker point out several ways that we tend to do this. I'm not going to go through all of them I, that I've got listed here, and they don't even offer a, an extensive list, but let me, just, let me just throw out a few. How about feeling good about ourselves, feeling pure and, and worthy of God's goodness because of our family righteousness? Look, look at my family I discipline my kids the right way. And I don't know where you stand, but that's either I spank or don't spank, right? In our language. And if you do spank, and I don't, what a horrible parent you are. Or if you don't spank, and I do, I don't know if I said that right, but you get the point. You're still a horrible parent because you don't do it like me. Man, have you seen that person's kids? They are horrendous. Mine are angels. I got news for you. They're all evil. I love them. They're cute. But they're all evil. Family righteousness. How about intellectual rightness, righteousness? Hey, I know the answers that you need because think about all I read. Like, I read it all, all the sociologists, all the philosophy people. I, I read every view, whether it's Christian or secular. I take them all, and I can defeat you with my intellect. I'm more articulate than you. I can prove you wrong. You're supposed to agree with me. You will never outsmart God. You'll never be smart enough to be pure before God. Mercy, righteousness. I care about the poor and the disadvantaged the way everyone should. Right? I'm a social justice warrior. If you're not out there seeking to end human trafficking, if every Facebook post you make is not about ceasing and stopping abortion, well, you're not as righteous as me. I'm the righteous one. Look, go look at my Facebook feed. I'm, I'm not speaking to myself. I'm just saying that's what we do, isn't it? If you don't, if you don't involve yourself in social justice, you must not be a good Christian. Heck, you might not be a Christian at all. But I am. Every other Saturday, I'm at Victory Mission. On the Saturdays I'm not at Victory Mission, 
I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with the homeless, making sure they get hot dogs and sandwiches. Man, I'm merciful. God's lucky he got me. Somebody as merciful as me. Political righteousness, well, it's a big one these days, isn't it? For a long time, people thought if you weren't voting Republican, you couldn't be Christian. And then, well, we faced a dilemma. (laughs) But now, if you voted for Trump, how in the world could you claim to be a Christian? I'm not saying that there's not issues on either side of that. Well, there's plenty of room for debate. But if you think you're righteous because of the way you vote and the way you view things politically, you have missed it. Oh, I'm tolerant and I'm open-minded to these Christians that call for holiness. Boy, they're not very, they're not very good Christians. Jesus was tolerant. Yeah, what that means is Jesus tolerated the sinfulness of man so that he could die for us and, and then rise for us. He didn't condemn us and smite us and send us away like we deserved. He tolerated it. He dealt with it, but he didn't approve of it or affirm it. If you think to be a good Christian is to tolerate sin in the sense of affirming it and building that law out, you've missed it. But if you think that tolerance is standing up as a jerk and just calling everybody out in their sin while ignoring your own is the way that Jesus would have you be. That's another law even unto itself. If we stand in the place that we think that the way we treat others is what makes us righteous, we're misunderstanding the teaching of Christ. Maybe, maybe you know somebody like this. Or worse yet, maybe you have a tendency to be somebody like this. With as much concern and compassion and love for you, let me encourage you to listen closely to the words of Jesus Christ. You fools. Who do you think you are thinking that you can stand up and be righteous on your own. I wish I could tell you that this ended well. But these next two verses are horrific. As he went away from there, as he left lunch, as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Rather than hearing the truth and repenting because of it, they bowed up their chest and said, I'm going to prove you wrong. I am going to show you that you are not who you say you are. I am going to prove to you that I can be righteous of my own power. Let me ask you, let me plead with you to resist the desire to reject his truth in your heart. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. 
who now tend towards self-righteousness and start to take the, take the credit for the work of the Spirit in us. But let me not leave you in a place of, place of hopelessness. Let me, let me just finish this off with the other half of the confrontation that we see broken out over the breadth and, 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 and width of Scripture. The hope is this, that while religion leads to death, the gospel is able to make the dead heart alive. Where religion fails, the gospel of Jesus' perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection succeeds. Listen to, the, listen to the distinction. Galatians 3, verses 10 through 11. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. If you determine that you are going to live by his law, if that's the way you're going to prove yourself, if you've ever broken one... You are cursed. But there is hope. The righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We are made alive, not by the law. We are saved not by the efforts of our flesh, but by the gospel of Jesus Christ and our faith in that alone. Where religion fails, the gospel succeeds. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly. The word of the cross is just a, a phrase that means the gospel. It's the message of Jesus' sacrificial uh, death on our behalf for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God to purify us. It is the power of God to enable us to live in obedience, not to prove ourselves to him, but because by his power we are enabled to walk in holiness. It is time to quit expecting a list of rules and commands to do only what God's power can do. It is time to quit extending power that God never gave the law to the law. It is time to look to the gospel and believe and trust in its power alone. And it's time to quit doing that for ourselves and for the other people sitting in this room and the other people living in this city. There is no law that will save anyone. And when people let you down because they don't live up to your expectations, don't condemn them. Let them hear the gospel of God's grace that they might be fully saved by it. That they might be sanctified by it. Not because they're trying to impress you, because they finally lived up to your rules. James Proctor wrote a hymn called It Is Finished. In its preface, he wrote, Since I first discovered Jesus to be the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, I have more than once met with a poor sinner seeking peace at the foot of Sinai. That's the law. At the foot of Sinai instead of Calvary, the gospel. 
And I have heard him again and again in bitter disappointment and fear groaning out. What must I do? I have said to him, do. Do. What can you do? And he wrote this hymn. And I pray that it will ring in your ears the same way it has rung in mine since I first heard it. Nothing either great nor small. Nothing sinner no. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. It is finished. Yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? He, or when he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. It is finished, yes, indeed. Finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith, doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. There's a reality that every one of us, if we'll be honest with ourselves, can know the, the, the reality of the flesh that wages war against our soul. We can know that we're sinners in need of a Savior. And we can come to that grace and think, oh, now I've made it and now I'm going to keep myself there. I'm going to follow these rules and God's going to continue to approve of me and love me because I'm finally doing what I need to do. We don't save ourselves and we don't keep ourselves saved. But you don't have to leave here without hope because what we can't do for ourselves, Jesus Christ did on our behalf when he hung on the cross and he died in our place and for our sins. So as your pastor who loves you dearly, do not live believing that the law will justify you and do not demand others to live by a law that will only condemn them. Believe and trust in the gospel and go preaching the gospel. It is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know the reality of the depths of our depravity in ways that we don't even fully recognize ourselves. Would you compassionately confront us and the lies we believe today that we might be given the opportunity to repent of them, to turn from them, to quit believing those lies, to change our mind about them, and begin to believe that what we can't do, your son has done. Jesus, open our eyes to the truth. Spirit, give us power to walk in these things. I pray these things by Jesus' name. Amen.